Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Youssef got his DJing break in a way that these days would be inconceivable. He won a mixtape competition in a print magazine. Back in 1998, he claimed the Bedroom Bedlam Prize in the now-folded music magazine and went on to simultaneously hold residencies at Renaissance, Ministry of Sound and Cream which at the time were three of the UK's biggest clubbing brands. Cream in particular was a big deal for Youssef. He'd attended the club in his hometown of Liverpool since the early 90s, and he likened the experience of playing there to stepping out at Anfield for the city's football team. Across a whirlwind few years, he also became a presenter on the UK's Radio 1 and started his own party, Circus. Twelve years later, and Circus is still at the heart of everything Youssef does, from its label offshoot to the regular club nights he stages in Liverpool and London. I caught up with him in London recently to reflect on his journey to becoming one of the UK's enduring dance music figures. So you had a um, pretty non-standard entry into this whole thing. Because in uh, 1998, you won a competition in Music Magazine, which is called um, Bedroom Bedlam, is that right? That's right. Um, do you remember much about your uh, winning entry? Yeah, and, and I remember everything about it, to be honest, because <clears throat> it was my second or third attempt. Obviously, at the time, I was, I'd been a DJ in Liverpool for a couple of years, and I'd been maybe six or seven years, one of those guys practicing 12 hours a day and all these things so that tape even even now it's on my soundcloud if anyone wants to go and have a check it out but it's still one of the best mixes i've ever done you know from, from a musical perspective it's it sounds really fresh still really current now but um yeah i mean w- w- when i when i completed it and obviously it was recorded in one take on on decks you plus playing record and a cassette player that's how long ago it was and um, i was confident or happy yeah, very happy with the mix and ironically Maybe later on we'll talk about my connection with Lottie and people like that, but um, it was Lottie that picked it out, and the guys from Basement Jacks and uh, Ben Turner from Music Magazine. So, yeah, they were very supportive at the time. Do you remember some of the key tracks on the mix? I can remember it opened with this rascal dub <clears throat> of To Be In Love by Masters of Work, and it's just this loopy, weird nonsense. And, and you know one one thing I remember... Before I started that mix, I had, I had some tracks on um, by uh, Moody Man and tracks on Fcom and stuff like that. But before I started that mix, I said to myself, "Okay, don't piss about. Just get in there and let's get the energy flowing straight from the off, <clears throat> rather than build up to a crescendo and get people's attention. Just let's get on with it." And I think that was the difference with that mix compared to the previous mixes because it kind of built up to like maybe 30, 40 minutes in, it was going somewhere. But this one, it was like, "Okay." And we're off. And what was the prize? The prize, the first thing that I won was I got a phone call the same day the magazine came out and I was given a set at Ministry of Sound, which again was incredible for a bedroom DJ to be playing in one of the world's most famous cl- famous clubs, especially back back then when it was, um, you know, it was a different kettle of fish than what it is now, I'd, I would say. Mm. But it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. So off the back of the mix, you got that call. They, they called me literally on the day and said, look, you know, the, the prize is you can come down and play Ministry of Sounds and you can warm up in the box, which was, um, you know, one of the best sounding rooms in the world. And that was cool. 
and it, it went pretty well. And then a couple of weeks later, I don't know if it was, I, I became in favor with the guys at Music Magazine, but they gave me a gig at Pasha in Ibiza. And that's when things really changed. I mean, it seems almost inconceivable um, these days that a DJ could launch a, a career off the back of um, winning a, a competition. Um, but I guess things were like really different back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back then it was just, you know, turntables and your mixtape. There no social media. And uh, of course, I mean, you obviously know James Sabula did exactly the same thing. He won a couple of months after me or maybe a year after me or something. So he's another one that's kind of gone on from um, what was a really kind of well-regarded uh, mixtape competition, probably the biggest one in the world at the time with like 2,000 entries in like a month, which is a lot to get through. But yeah, so it, it is, compared to now, it's just as crazy. So at the time, just to kind of clarify, the, the currency very much would have been like the perfect cassette recorded mix and that being put in the hands of the right person. Is, is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And um, were you kind of like hustling on the mixtape scene before that? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I've never been one to wait for things to come to me. I've, I've always kind of thought, okay, uh, how is this guy doing it? And I'll, I'll have a look or I'll contact a lot of the clubs or whatever to send tapes off and just get myself around. And in particular in Liverpool, playing a place like Bar Bar and... Um, and Eden, which ironically now is the same venue we do circus in, as one of the first places I ever got a residency in. But, you know, just being, just having a hustle, and especially with the guys at Cream, you know, we'll probably get onto that shortly, but they uh, knew that I was a DJ in Liverpool by, they had a little, no say in the matter, because every week when I went to the club, there'd be a new mixtape, and it'd be in the hands of one of the DJs, maybe um, Junior Sanchez or Roger Sanchez or or Derek Carter, or, or the guys behind the behind the scenes, or even Faf Phil Cooper would get a mixtape. And um, I think they could see a kind of natural progression with my musical taste, my skills, all these things. Um, so yeah, when the music magazine came out, I think it pricked up the ears of the guys at Cream. I mean, again, it seems um, almost inconceivable that um, there would be um, DJs of the, of the nature that you're uh, describing who would be um, you know, constantly listening and have the time to listen to sort of um, speculative mixes. But I guess people were um, open to this kind of thing at that point. Uh, I, I, I guess so. I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows if they were even listening? <laughs> but, but they were definitely getting the tapes. Yeah. There, there is that. But I mean, I've speak, I speak to Junior Sanchez regularly when I see him at these events around the world. And he always says, oh, yo, yo, man, you were that DJ that used to come in the booth. I don't know how he used to get in the DJ booth. And I maybe saw his black all in and kind of... Uh, pass on a mixtape while my friends were raiding the minibar. <laughs> that was the routine. <laughs> it really, it really was. I mean, you know, this is before my Cream career because I was um, on the dance floors of Cream right from the very beginning. And, um, you know, the, the difference between what it is now compared to then is, you know, it's night and day. Mm. Uh, when was the very beginning for Cream? It was October 1992. My, oh, you got it down to the month and everything. <laughs> I, if my memory serves me right, yeah, it was it was that that date, and <clears throat> it was very important for the city. Uh, culturally, it was um, it, it was a complete shift from um, candy kind of hardcore acid house which it, it got from being like an, an underground movement acid house to going on the radios to being a, a little bit of a thing that you would avoid and cream with a, a complete antidote to that they started with a real authentic um 
New York house like Frankie Knuckles and Tony Humphreys and, the, and these people and bringing them to Liverpool for the for the first time, even though James Martin was doing it already and another club called 051. But he brought the ethos of instead of a dressed down clubber and your baggy raver clothes and your dummy and all the glow sticks and all that nonsense, he introduced a, a sophisticated sound in a sophisticated room. People would dress up rather than dress down. And he brought a whole new ethos to, the, uh, to Liverpool for the first time. So in terms of those um, DJs you mentioned, would you say that they were very much like, um, you know, influential and they were kind of, you know, in your formative <clears throat> days? Is this kind of who you were uh, modelling yourself after in a way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely uh, Derek Carter and Roger S, as he was known then, Roger Sanchez, particularly from a skills perspective, because I was always my my drives me the heartbeat of what everything I'm interested in is, is house music so those guys were coming along and Cream at, at the time was, it would have like Judge Jules in one room and Oakenfold in another but then Roger Sanchez and Derek Carter in another and that's that's where I'd be and they would have three decks going you know instead of just blending the end of a tune into another they were really take, taking like battle style um, DJ into a whole new perspective for me and I was like, okay, I'd, wa- I'd literally watch Roger Sanchez play, and he would he would be cutting up cutting up two tunes and kind of half beating things and making his own crescendos. And he's he's Roger. It's got to be said, he's one of the most skillful DJs of all time. He genuinely is. <clears throat> and whether you're into his music or what he's doing right now, then he, he was untouchable. He really, really was. So I, w- I would see what he was doing, patiently look over the DJ booth, trying to figure out what is this guy doing. Go home buy two copies of a record and think, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And I would sit in my bedroom trying to figure out how to do a double beat trick, you know, the doof, 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 where you, you slip a record half a beat behind so it gets to a crescendo. That's what Roger was doing and I didn't know. So I got home and then I would do it for 12 hours until I could figure out what I could do. And that, and that was my routine. I think, okay, how can I do this? I'd get it and then I'd nail it. And that's how I kind of hone my my skills. I mean, do you feel like on a general level, um, house DJs were playing quite differently back then? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it was a lot more vocal, if you like. It wasn't as, uh, as drum-led until later on when people like Onions and Halo and Hippie kind of uh, appeared on the scene, so to speak. But um, yeah, it was it was more musical. It was a more broad, more New York, very uh, disco and soul based. As in, you know, it was born out of that era. So uh, mm-hmm. and people like like obviously Dave Morales and that's who used to come to Cream. But then things change when techno was introduced to Cream. And in terms of uh, technique, do you think like people were just? I mean, some of the um, like the the beat um, juggling technique that you were describing, like yeah. I, I just don't see people doing that anymore. I mean, were people like handling records differently? <clears throat> do you think? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say you know a, a very small percentage of the DJ DJs I go and watch were handling records very differently, as in they were controlling the the record they 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 would choose what part of the record they were going to play rather than like play a record from start to finish which is just as fine you know djing will always be about about uh, music and selection and you know that's it skills conferred but it's always great to watch and it's always cool to be in control so there was um like i say roger and derek and then carl cox so the these were the three djs that were um just in charge and that's mm. what i wanted to be um so I guess by the end of the 90s, Cream had kind of established itself as like one of the world's like foremost clubbing brands, if you like. Um, was there a time at which you could sort of see that happening? Like wh- when when did Cream become this kind of world-known clubbing institution? Um, 
I, I can remember Kareem just kind of exploding very, very quickly. And because, like I mentioned earlier on, because of the, it was the antithesis of everything that become a, a little bit candy raver. Um, and it was cool and it was new and it was fresh. And um, it went from literally two or 300 people to being sold out capacity um, very, very quickly. But I would say after two years of Cream being weekly, it became a phenomenon. It really did. In fact, you must have seen that famous photograph that J- Jamie, um, Jamie, I can't remember the second name, Jamie took a photograph of when Sasha played for the first time. And it was a, a roadblock. I mean, it, it was crazy. It looked like um, people were about to go to a, like, you know, a World Cup match or something. It was crazy. And at that point, I think James must have understood that things were, were changing. And I think James, by his own, James Barton, sorry, for the, the owner of Cream, um, always wanted to make Cream into a, you know, a global phenomenon, a global brand, in his words, like Pepsi or like Coca-Cola. And at that time... He, he was pretty much doing it. He really was. I mean, who else? Can, can you imagine selling out a club week in, week out in in a small city in England for 3,000 people every week with underground DJs? It's, it's you know, it's quite incredible. So then your involvement, like how did how did this come about? I mean, obviously you were attending for many years and I assume you were getting to know some of the, um, some of the people down there. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- th- this, what I'm going to tell you now probably sounds... Um, well, just like a uh, horse shit. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> but let's, just, let's just put it that bluntly. But I used to like lie in my bed before I'd go to sleep at night worrying about how I was going to play a cream. And what I mean by that is they renovated the club and it went from kind of just decks or, and, a, and, a, and a mixer just on a you know, plank of water, wherever it was, just a regular DJ booth, to introducing this whole new Steve Dash sound system, which was, even to this day, is one of the greats. But they had floated turntables and a Yori mixer and a, a crossover. So I used to sit in my room, in my bedroom before I go to bed, or, or even with my eyes closed, worrying, how am I going to cope playing on these decks? And this was years before my residency at Korean come about. It wasn't, it wasn't like during. I kind of had this um, belief that this was going to happen. And I was, I, was, I was insistent upon myself that one day, sooner or later, they were, were going to come and ask me And you were resident. already figuring out the permutate and the, yeah. the obstacles maybe and the, the difficulties you might experience in playing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like th- three years, <clears throat> three years before, maybe, maybe even more. But anyway, one day after, uh, after I won the competition and I was already resident at Ministry of Sound and Renaissance, um, and that was great. You know, bear in mind that I'd gone from working on Little Woods um, to being resident at Ministry. In fact, I was actually still working in Little Woods. I didn't want to leave and I got made redundant and that, and that was the reason that I left. Can you to... tell people what Little Woods is who sorry. aren't from the UK? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Little Woods is um, a clothing catalogue, which um, actually it's a, it's a full catalogue that sells TVs and everything that you would get. Um, and I used to work there on uh, as an assistant buyer and um, I didn't really want to leave because I'm like, okay, well, if I leave now, I'm going to... Um, put myself in the lion's den and I'm going to have to become a full-time DJ, but they may be redundant, unfortunately. Well, fortunately. Yeah, okay. And, and I never I never looked back. But anyway, what I was going to say about Cream was one day there, there, I was in Liverpool and I bumped into Jim King and James Barton, the two directors of Cream, just down one of the streets in a bar. And he just came up to me and said, would you like to be residents of Cream? And I was just like, yes. You know, I was so happy. But we, even then, respectfully, the first thing I did was phone up Ministry and Renaissance and say, look guys, this has come in. You know, this is what I've been after since I was a kid. 
Um, it would be like, you know, when Michael Owen got to play for Liverpool, when it, you know he'd been going through, and that's what he wanted to do. But they were really cool about it. In fact, they didn't even really revoke my residencies from ministry. There was a point when I was playing um, Kareem 10 till 12, and then I'd get in the car and play ministry 4 till 6. And that was my routine pretty much every week until I started doing six-hour sets in the annex, and then I had to just kind of commit to Kareem. I mean, you mentioned there you were running kind of simultaneously um, three residencies, which again um, seems like something from a from a lost era almost. Um, do you think we'd ever go back to that model? Do you think that's something that could still work? Um, I, I really don't think so. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, well, may, maybe at my level then, you know, because I was only a very entry level young young kid, even though I had some visibility because of music magazine. I wasn't any sort of, I wouldn't say I had a, a fan base. I probably had a, uh, quite a deal of curiosity. Um, and maybe the, the, um, the club owners from Renaissance Cream and Ministry could see a little bit of, um, you know, promise in me, so to speak. But I don't know. I really, I really don't know. I don't know because everybody is trying to do their own thing these days. Yes, yeah, so As the mod, so the model of a weekly residency maybe doesn't lend itself to a kind of well more globalized scene now or something. Yeah, maybe not. But I, I think I think it's it would be a great thing to do for for a DJ. There's nothing that cuts your teeth more as a DJ than playing week in, week out. In fact, I would strongly recommend that anybody any DJ that's really thinking of trying to do it to get in, even if it's not um, the the gig, the pinnacle gig where you want to be, learning your craft. That, that's what it's all about. How would you kind of describe your sound around the sort of peak era cream time for you? Um, it was just a blend of house and techno, um, very influenced by Chicago in one way, and very influenced by by the new influx of the West Coast sound, which was uh, Halo and Hippie and Onions and Joski and, and the, the Siesta record label sounds. And I was quite instrumental in introducing that to the UK in a lot of ways because um, I would book them at Circuit, sorry, book them at Cream, Let's not get that far. We'll get to that. <laughs> I booked them a cream in the annex with me. Um, I think the only other place that they might have been playing in, in the UK was, I, I don't even know, actually. So they, they were very supportive because um, at the time, be, because of all this action with me, I got given a Radio 1 show. Um, so playing these super underground tracks on Radio 1 was just unheard of. So um, they were massively supportive of me. Yeah, I mean, I know you you kind of um, mentioned that you're introducing people to this sound. And um, I think for me, this is uh, personally true. I mean, I remember the mix mount cover mount you did in like 2000 or 2001 that featured a bunch of these dudes. Yeah. I mean, uh, would you say that this particular sound, because it, it was very based around a, a sort of um, a small group of West Coast producers, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, did it ever gain any like real traction in the UK? I mean, did it become a thing, so to speak? Yeah. Um, it, it did for a while. I mean, definitely <clears throat> um, Halo and Hippie became like legendary in places like Fabric and um, Pressure in Glasgow. Onions and Joski had some great tracks on their labels, uh, Electric Soul and Maya, but I'm not too sure if they kind of finally kicked off, but I'd say the sounds became massively popular. And like you mentioned before about the 2001 Mixmag CD, which, uh, which was a cover band CD that I did for them. Um, a lot of the tracks were on there. And because Mixmag was selling a lot more back then uh, that cd became in, like in most club and households around the uk very 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 quickly so a lot of these tracks were flying out on the uh, from all the record labels sorry all the record shops in england they were selling 
endless amounts of these tracks because of that CD. I was getting phone calls from a lot of the um, record shops in Glasgow and London and Nottingham saying, "Yo, thanks so much, man, for putting this track on the on the on the album." And I don't didn't think of it like that. I didn't I don't think in a forward way. I'm just like, I love this record. It's going on the mix. That's it. Yeah, sure. But, you know. And um, how did the Radio One gig come about? Yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it really was strange because um, I think I was getting a lot of, like I said, a lot of visibility through the residencies and through um, music magazine. Magazine gave me a week a monthly column, which was cool. So I had to kind of write what I was up to every month, and I was seemed to be playing a lot of gigs around the UK, and I was getting, like I said, a visibility. But they they invited me in for to do a pilot which was in a room like this and he said have you ever done radio before and i was like no <laughs> i've literally never done radio at all so i was like okay so i did a pilot on a thursday and then he phoned me up the next day and said would you like to do um like a super sub show and you'd, you'd sit in for i think it was danny Ramplin at the time occasionally pete i think i think seb fontaine was doing it then mm. but you can play your own music don't worry about that it's a hundred percent your own playlist i was like you know in for a penny <laughs> let's just let's just do it you know that's no problem but i was okay i think by the end of my kind of three-year stint because I, I i would say I, I did a show about a month maybe sometimes more sometimes a bit less it, it, it depended um i was a lot more of a confident broadcaster if you like but my first show i i wouldn't want to listen back to it <laughs> i really wouldn't because obviously just having that rhythm of how to broadcast it's different than just playing tunes but you know, fair play to Radio 1 for taking a chance, but it was crazy that my first show was live on a Saturday night on Radio 1, and a few, a couple of weeks before, I'd never done radio. And with, uh, you know, we're not talking about small numbers either. This is like, you know, prime Saturday night, and yeah. I guess if you were covering for Danny Rampley, it would have been like seven in the evening or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, do you even remember anything of that? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do. It, I mean, you know, they literally put me in the hot seat and yeah. just get, get on with it. And I had a had a producer, and they would kind of help me man the desk, and they would write a bit of a script out for me, and I tried to kind of mumble through it. And even then, I'd say I probably spoke more of a heavy Scouse accent, Liverpool accent, and I spoke probably faster, and I was a bit more nervous, and I was younger. And I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, just, the, just the, the recipe <laughs> is bananas, but it, it was good. And, you know, it, again, it did, it did a lot for me. And I was able to support, you know, a lot of great brand new underground music and maybe show off my DJing a little bit. And, um, yeah, it was good fun. I do remember one show, though, where me and Dave Beer from Back to Basics had to, I had to interview Dave Beer. And like I just mentioned about my uh, broader accent back then, and Dave, Dave, Dave Beer's broad accent. Now he's he can't really understand them at the Which best of times. Which is a broad Leeds accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was. I had to interview him live on air. It didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, it really didn't go well. But anyway, I think that that was a fun time. Um, I think by the end of it, I would have liked to have really got my teeth into it and maybe become um, a bit of a broadcaster. And I've recently started in my own radio show now. So. I'd, it would have been fun to maybe take it to the next level, but at the same time, being tarred with, with uh, at the time with a Radio One brush, when you're kind of doing music which is the opposite of of mainstream, you know, it was the balance was uncomfortable for some people to kind of uh, understand. 
If you oh, like I see. It. Okay, so do you think there were almost um, like preconceptions um, over what you did as a DJ uh, due to the fact that you were on Radio 1? Yeah, exactly, yeah. That maybe weren't even based on the music that you were uh, pushing on the show? Yeah, yeah, because some people would book me. Um, it was mainly for a lot of UK gigs, but it would say the Radio 1 and brackets next to my name. And then I'd get there and kind of just do my West Coast, Chicago, Jack in 3-deck action. And people would be like... Going on here, <laughs> you know, which is okay, and you know, like I say, my my main criteria being a DJ is to rock the crowd, so I'd always try and do my best. But um, yeah, I think I was misunderstood at the time, briefly. So, um, with Cream kind of being your, you know, boyhood fantasy, if you like, you're uh, playing for Liverpool, Michael Owen moment. Um, you actually brought that to a close after a number of years. And uh, how long were you with Cream? I was there for about four years, about four years. Okay, and what were the kind of circumstances that led to you sort of thinking, okay, now's the time to, to move on and do yeah. something new? Well, it was, what happened was, um, I was in the annex and I was playing six hour sets and I was introducing a, a lot of these names I mentioned earlier on to Liverpool. <clears throat> that was cool. But the music in the other room was so different. Um, and not to my personal tastes and not what I was representing. And it was like, it was really going from, you know, more handbag commercial house to um, trance, to pop trance, to hard house. And I'm in the other room kind of trying to get some grooves going and that's cool. But I said to the guys at Cream, uh, look, I don't think this is appropriate anymore. How about, how about I start my own night? And they were like, okay, yeah, really behind the idea and that's great. Let's get on with it. So we agreed. We were going to start my own night at Cream called Circus. And then subsequently, when I was off away organising uh, the lineups and the artwork and the logos and all these things and really kind of getting excited about having my own night in Liverpool for the first time, they shut the doors of Cream and Cream closed on, before its 10th birthday because of um, financial reasons. The club was kind of not doing great, if, if you like, Um what had gone from 3,000 a week was maybe down to 1,000 a week. And instead, instead of closing um, all three rooms, they were trying to, you know, go against the green and just let, instead of taking a step back and going forward, uh, which, which which was my advice at the time. It's like, look, let's just start again. Let's bring it back. Let, but they didn't want to do that. Anyway, they shut, they shut the doors. So Richard McGuinness, who is one of my really good friends, you know, people might know Richard as the Booker of Warehouse, Global Gathering, um, Shibuku. But before that, he was my, he's one of my good friends and a really big supporter of me. In fact, Richard McGuinness was the first person to hear that music tape you mentioned earlier on. I uh, give okay. me a gig in Ireland, which, which was the first gig I ever got on a plane to go to. So he suggested, why don't you start Circus at this other place called The Mask, which is just up the road, and me and you will go in together. And I was like, okay, let's just do it. And so we did that on September the 14th, 2002 expecting 200 people they got like 450 so we were like okay people in Liverpool want house music house and techno and what we do and and you know we literally haven't looked back I mean is the would you say that the scene was in um kind of a strange place at that time I mean um I, I'm guessing this is um around the time period where the um if you like super club and superstar uh, DJ era had, had, had kind of imploded I mean was it kind of um did you feel as though you were the um, you know like the dawn of a, of a new style of clubbing or something because as you say we'd gone from 3,000 uh, people going to cream each week and you know the numbers just kind of fell off 
yeah. like really quickly. I think that the reason um, the numbers fell off for Cream, from in, in my opinion, is because um, Cream used to, like I said before, used to be um, Derek Carter and Tony Humphreys in one room, and then it was a mix. And it, but then they introduced Bugged Out to the same venue, and Bugged Out was playing, took all the really interesting, great, fresh new music and techno, and Cream never had any left really. Mm. So I think from that. I believe that people wanted to hear fresh music in Liverpool still. Um, we, we wanted to start small and honest, and that's exactly what we did. And like I say, the the club club scene imploded across the whole of the UK. And because it was rinsed, you know, it really was. I mean, I think, you know, similar to what's happened in America with EDM now, the same model happened in the UK a long, long time ago. And that is on the verge of, I don't know if it's going to implode as much out there because there's so much infrastructure and, and investments out there, but... Nevertheless, I think that the the passion for it will wane if you shove it down people's throats too much. Because mm, it did happen pretty quickly in the UK, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, sort certainly around did. the turn of the millennium. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, kind of as a promoter, did you have like um, you know a mission statement, or was it like a defining thing that you wanted to like offer to Liverpool? Yeah, I mean, and it's still the same. It's um, entertainment and enlightenment. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's going to have a good time, but we're going to listen to new music. And he, I think I used to have these banners put up and, and that said serious music, fun times. And it's like fresh new music, but it's okay to just come and have a laugh. You know, it's not chin strokery. It's not too serious. It's what clubbing is meant to be about. It's it's a type of club Well, I've tried to instill in people where you can come by yourself. That's the whole point. You can come and have fun, listen to great new music. You will leave with the friends, even if you came with them with none. That's kind of the, the ethos behind it. I mean, uh, have there been like defining nights for you, circus? Yeah, um, endless, <clears throat> really, really endless. I mean, I think even the first night when four hundred people came and we were expecting like two, I was like, okay, this is this is this is incredible. And then of course, um, the first birthday when I finally got my hero Derek Carter to come and play. He's now one of my good friends and releases music on my label and all these things, which is bizarre. But yeah, and Derek played for us, and it was a it was an amazing experience to sell out way in advance. Had Derek playing in the club, and it was such a good party. Um, the first time Laurent Garnier played for us, which was a kind of a, re- a real shift for us because we, we we took a chance. We were, at the time, a predominantly just house club, not playing too much techno sometimes. But Laurent came in, and we kind of quite bravely said, "He said, what do you want me to play?'" And he's playing he's playing five a five hour set from start to finish in the main room, the theatre, and we just said, "Just do whatever you want." And he goes, "Okay, you sure?" And we're like, yeah, yeah. And, and the circus crowd I've never heard, kind of from dub, reggae, up through disco, to house, to techno, to epic, to a full Laurent mm. set. But they lost their minds for it. And it was my birthday as well, I'll never forget. But yeah, and then obviously the 500th Essential Mix, which was amazing, like a few years later when BBC Radio 1 asked us um, to host the 500th Essential Mix, which could have been any club in the whole world. And they come to us and said, look, we can get this. Here's Pete. <clears throat> um, go and speak to your DJ mates. Let's see who you can get in. It's like, okay. So we asked Richie Horton um, and Sasha, and then the public voted for Aeroplane. And it was it was incredible. It really was incredible. It was one of the, one of the best parties we've ever done, and particularly because it was around the time of, of that Ash Cloud a, couple, a few years ago, when maybe at 7 o'clock on the day of the gig, we didn't know if anyone was coming. And it was going to be broadcast live and all these things. And we didn't know if any DJ could actually get through and land in England. And then one by one, within a, between seven and eight o'clock, everyone made it. 
it, it could have gone seriously wrong. It could have gone. So many cancelled flights that weekend. I know, I know. I think we were one of the only clubs in the UK that didn't get affected and everything just came, came together. <clears throat> uh, what else? I, I think when I play longer sets in the theatre, um, when I play from start to finish, they seem to kind of go down really well because the funny thing is about the theatre, which is Circus's main room in Liverpool, it's one of the best rooms you'll ever see to play in. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's literally a 200-year-old theatre, 220 years old. Charles Dickens has spoken on the stage. There used to be autopsies in that room. It's a, It's got real history in that room, but it's one of the hardest places to really nail it. If you can nail it in that theatre. Why can, is that? I don't know. I think it's because it, it's, it's, it's an amphitheatre-style vibe. It goes up and up and up, <clears throat> and, that's, and that's great. But, um, and you can see everyone's faces, but just trying to get that full-on barbaric connection, which is what I love. You know, it doesn't have to be fast or hard or aggressive or anything, but just getting that movement where everyone's kind of locked into the zone. It's quite hard to do in that room. Um, Laurent's done it, Coxie's done it, Corolla's done it, Dice has done it. I fortunately get to do it quite a lot, and it's um, it's one of the greats. It's one of the great rooms. Uh, so, in running your parties in Liverpool, because you've become like a, a real stalwart in the, of the scene there. I mean, uh, has it been important to you down the years to kind of support the scene in Liverpool? Is that something you've thought quite closely about? Yeah, of course. I mean, I really go out of my way to to do it, really, because you know, not just because I was supported in the past by other clubs and, you know, Cream and um, venues in Liverpool, but just because I think it's great to find new talent. Um, for years at Circus, we've always done something as simple as do, doing a DJ competition. Well, when I say simple, it's a bit, a bit of a ball ache because it takes me ages to go through every single mix because I genuinely go through every single mix. So it can take me a while, but I found some great, great talent through those uh, DJ competitions. Um, more recently with the label, I'm able to find um, uh, like remix competitions where you can find fresh new talent. And now, again, with the label, finding um, really kind of accomplished artists, brand new beat makers, uh, Liverpool seems to have an abundance of them at the moment. And um, in terms of Liverpool, how would you say that it compares to other UK cities for, for going out? Is, is that the kind of like defining characteristics of a Liverpool crowd? Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. It's, I, mean, I think it can be very working class for, in, in, in a lot of good ways. You know, people genuinely graft all week and they come out for the weekend and they just, to coin a phrase, they just want to go for it. You know, they mm. want to have it. They want to have a, they want to have a good time and you know, they want to listen to music. They want to feel like they've they've got the money's worth out of Unite and they really let rip but at the same time they're a really clued up city when it comes to music you know obviously historically speaking Liverpool's always had a really buoyant music scene but at the moment in Liverpool from a house and techno perspective it's never been better it's just underground party after underground party after underground party and you know no matter where you go people genu genuinely go for it um, I wanted to ask you about Carl Cox, as you've been resident at uh, his parties in Ibiza over a number of years. It seems to have been one of your like key gigs in the yeah. last decade. Would you say that he's kind of acted as um, a kind of mentor figure in a way? I mean, is there stuff that you've learned in particular from him? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's gone out of, he's been a mentor on purpose. <clears throat> but I think through mm. spending so much time with him and we're on the same agency and obviously we play a lot of gigs together just just listening to the way he plays and the way he is with people and he takes the, from a DJ perspective Coxie 
make sure he nails every single gig. And I think that's one thing I've took from him because even though I will, I always know that the, the important thing about the, being a DJ is to entertain and enlighten, like I said before, but you really are there to rock the club. A Coxie has, you know, subconsciously instilled that into me. Um, I've never seen him not nail it ever. I must have seen him play a hundred times and whether you're into all of his music or not, he will nail that. He'll make you dance. Mm. And that, that's what he does. And Carl was um, one of the first DJ mixtapes I ever I ever heard, and that really made me want to be a DJ. In fact, it was this mixtape called Amnesia House in 1991, and it was a three deck mixing, um, like rave tape. But like again, like I mentioned before, most of the DJs were kind of blending the end of the tracks. Coxie was in in charge, cutting three decks up, like loops of bits, just cutting and just making things really complicated, but with the funk. It was just totally different. <clears throat> but yeah, again, you know, just listen to Carl from then to progressing through the years. And what I meant, what, what I neglected to say before was Coxie at Circus for the first time was like a big deal for me. And um, just seeing him nail the theatre. And then when we played back to back at Circus another time, that, that was a really, really big deal for me. But again, um, just seeing the effort that he puts into smashing the crowd and the way he is with people, he gives everyone like a moment of his time. He's very respectful. Um, he's seen everything. He doesn't get flustered, so it's, you know, at all really. And he can play all the way from disco right through to nosebleed techno, which for me, that's what a DJ should be able to do. So when you talk about his consistency and kind of like nailing it each time, do you think that simply comes from like a intense um, amount of focus on each gig? Like, how does he pull that off? Well, uh, you better ask Carl that question. But <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think from, from you know. What I do is you genuinely feel the vibe of the room, and you, you know, and you can just feel what, which, how much energy is required to be spent. You know, um, last week I played in Amnesia in Milan, um, and I know I knew as soon as I come into the room that they wanted it more fierce. They wanted a bit of techno, but I think it, that's the that's the real skill of a, being a DJ is is kind of approaching each gig. You know, as soon as you arrive into the booth, you feel in the vibe of which way to take it, which is why I worry about a lot of laptop guys who are just playing their live sets and things like that, and they don't have flexibility. But maybe we'll get to that shortly. Um, so from under the umbrella of um, Carl's Ibiza parties, you did um, the first um, circus shows, um, dedicated shows in Ibiza uh, this year. But um, was it kind of a, a strange summer for you? Because there was some problems, wasn't there, at Boom, which was the, the club you were hosting at? No, no, let, let, let me explain. <clears throat> um, with Coxie, I was resident for, for years. And um, then this summer, I was offered to do Boom which was seemed like a good idea at the time. So unbelievably, I had to leave uh, space for a year. I'm going to go back and play again this year, which is which is great. But um, last year, we were offered by Danny Whittle and Mark Neto, who used to be uh, the top guys at Pasha, and they came over to, to Boom, showed me this exciting new club um, with these guys, which are two of the most respected people in Ibiza, full stop. Um, and it seemed very, very you know appealing at the time. And even though... Something inside me was like, I don't know about this, you know. But we got out there. Um, I was given a month to book everything, to get everything organised, the artwork, all the lineups. And considering we had such a short space of time, the lineups were fantastic. But I, I don't really want to give you too much of the back details on Boom, but I can just let just let you say, we did our absolute best, and it went okay. It went better than we 
um, all agreed on the, what we're going to do first year, second year, third year. But the back room, boom, weren't pulling the weight, if you can if you can say that. And um, even, even now, the mo- the mess still hasn't been mopped up. Um, it's very. Uh, it's very, very complicated situation. I mean, it's got to be a difficult uh, market to enter into as a, as a new offering, right? Yeah, and it was nothing. I, I, I think the fact that we're not going to go back next year to Boone um, or this year is nothing to do with kind of a, a success rate or anything like that. I'm not trying to say we, we did really great. It was okay. It wasn't wasn't too bad. But I think it was um, we, we we were given the awkward playing field to work work upon. Um, so kind of the backdrop to all of this has been your productions. Um, you've released on like some really notable labels yeah. like Cocoon, Saved to Seal, Defected, Intech. Do you feel though as though um, people have seen you first and foremost as a, a DJ down the years? Do you think the productions has kind of been like something that has been a little bit more background in your story? Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say that's fair comment. I mean, because that that's where I am first and foremost. You know, I... I I practice most at being a DJ, um, and practice second most at being a producer. So I think that that's why maybe it's it's kind of it's kid brother at the moment. Well, not at the moment. It, it it's really get like getting there. You know, um, well, once I get there, like you say, I've released on some great labels, new stuff coming on Desolat, signed to Warner Brothers. You know, so I, I do a lot of um, broader music as well. But maybe, um, maybe it, it could have being a little bit more buoyant but during those cream days you know <laughs> i was probably more interested in getting leathered than i was in making music but um that's fine you know uh, i am where i am I'd, I'd say these days i'm fairly reasonably accomplished as a producer you know i make all my own music write my songs um lyrically which is good and you know more recently a track called float away seems to have, have done really well and another one on defected i see and like i say i've just been signed to desolat as well so yeah, music's going really well, and particularly on my label. But um, there's one thing. Um, up until maybe a past couple of years, I never really had the same love for making music that I did for DJing. But now it's kind of equal, um, you know. And I'm really, I'm in my studio every single day, uh, even when I'm on the road. You know, uh, I'll sit there kind of sketching out tracks and ideas, and but that, that that's what I'm really passionate about these days. Was it kind of difficult in a way to um, come from an era where there maybe um, was more focus on the pure art of DJing, and then when the kind of market changed, there was all this um, additional pressure, if you like, to to then put a production hat on and you know have these simultaneous careers in a way. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say it was quite a jump, but again. Um, Maybe the, the passion just wasn't there for me particularly. Like it was, you know, I was I heard of Derek Hart and Roger Sanchez mainly because not just because of Cream, but because I was buying their records. So I wouldn't say I, I, I was lazy, but maybe I, I could have been a bit more forthcoming. But you know, my natural abilities for for passion just go just come naturally. So whenever um, that said, I've been, I've been making music for twelve years. First music, uh, the first track I did was with Paul Wolford. Uh, which was great, um, and I'm signed to Junior. So it was a long, long time ago. But now I'm really confident in the studio. I've got like a nice, nice setup, and things seem to be progressing at a quite a, quite a nice rate. Was there a moment at which, or a time at which, it just kind of like clicked for you, and just started to make a bit more sense, and you sort of started to naturally more in, enjoy it and want to be in the studio? Yeah, I'd, I'd say when I did my last. Um, well, no, I was going to say it was. Be- 
during the time when I did my first album, about about five years ago, four or five years ago, um, I was making track to track and I kind of pieced together a bit of an album. But I realised I was sitting down and making music every day and I was really enjoying it. And particularly when I, when I made Come Home, which was on Cocoon, um, which was like probably my favourite track I've ever done, even now. Um, I think I kind of let go as such. I didn't want to make like just this sound or that sound. It was the first moment when I was wanting to make what naturally came out, which is what I've been doing ever since, which is why if you look at my um, catalogue since then, some some tracks are kind of quite blistering techno, others are super deep, others are like not even house. But I just sit down and just make what I feel is, you know, come inside me, for want of a better phrase. Uh, the guys that you kind of um, look to at the moment, are you particularly um, influenced by um, particular producers in the studio? N- no, not, not really. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of a wide range of music. Um, you know, believe it or not, I, I, I stick on a lot of black music at home and just jazz FM or because I, I listen to song structure and even when I make um, just, just a beat track I want it to have a beginning middle and end and not because I want um, I, I want every track I make to have a story and to matter to me so you know I, that said you know when I DJ out I'm quite happy with just loops so <clears throat> I mean, maybe even now there's a bit of confusion of what I do as a DJ and what I do as a, as a producer because I make a kind of super deep song, like on the one, the last one in Defected, which is called I See, which is a really poignant, melancholy, full full song I wrote in Ibiza six years ago, and then I made into this track, and then you hear me play, and it's bang out techno. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be confusing for people, but I just love both. So that that's I think that's where I'm at now. I've got a broader palette. Again, it just point, points to these market forces, doesn't it? Where um, the productions are supposed to be like a, you know, a calling card, and everyone like hears it and then wants <clears> to go and hear the reflection of that in the club or something. Yeah. Well, the way I see it is, you know, I'm there to to rock a club as a DJ, but as a producer and someone who makes music, I'm here to tell tell a story, so to speak. And you know, when when all is dust, there's going to be me and my music, and I want to be proud of every track. I don't want to make, make like I've made a track that it works in that particular situation. I like to do them too, and that's fine. But um, I really, you know, want to look back at every single record I've made and be proud of it. Um, so it's been roughly five years since you um, started the Circus label. Um, like, as a label boss, are there particular things you're looking for? Are there, are there particular things you find yourself going towards in terms of the stuff that you sign and, and release? Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. I, I'd want the music to have to be firstly well made. I wanted to sit anywhere in the, the electronic spectrum, if you like. Have personality and like originality if you can. Um, or if not, smash the dance floor. That's cool. DJ DJ uh, tools are just as good for me. Um, but again, like I just said before, I want every record to be colourful, to, to matter. Um, and the label's progressing at such, especially in the last year, it seems to have taken a nice, a nice shape, particularly since the Bigger Than Prince record. So I've managed to kind of get the the record label really organised now, and I've got releases lined up until maybe the end of the summer already. So it's like every every month, but like a proper package, and similar to way the way I do circus. The idea behind it is, uh, it's not just um, every lineup must matter or must be as unmissable as possible. 
that's kind of the, the, the ethos behind it. But even though I'm signing people like Green Velvet and then rebooting Carcox, I'm also pushing people like Kai Crichton and Kydis and other people that you may have never, ever heard of because it's all about balance. Similar to like circus, there was like there's always like DJ Big Balls in the top, me in the middle, and then a fresh name, and that's the way it works. And that's similar with with the record label. It's all about pushing what you can, but making getting um. I go back to this word visibility, because it's so hard to sell records at the moment. But uh, again, it's it was a labour of love, but now it seems to have turned the corner. Yeah. So did you um invite? Green Velvet to record something or how did how did that come about? <clears throat> what happened was it was um, Circus 10 year anniversary party or leading up to it so I thought to myself okay the record label's doing solidly it's doing alright but I've got all these guys that have been playing for me for a long long time why not just ask them to make me a brand new track um, it's like okay so one by one I went to Coxie I went to Nick Curley Gooty um, asked loads of people that have been playing for me for a long, a long time can you make a, a track for the Circus X album and the response was so amazing that i've ended up having to do two with uh, laurent garnier eats everything david scolacci so i've got 20 amazing artists that have all done tracks for sex recordings but one of them was bigger than prince so i took um green velvet to do a circus tour with me in indonesia I and mean, we did a like a full four or five gig tour out there we do circus tour the tours there occasionally and i was explaining to him about look circus x album volume one it's got nine tracks, but there's one space left. I told him about the list of people who were in. Would you like to be involved? And he's like, yeah, man. You know what he's like? And <clears throat> really like kind of positive about the idea. And he, and he was straight in. So we gave, uh, he gave me a date and it was December 14th last year. And he said he would have me a track by that date. And he did. And he gave me the original version of Bigger Than Prince. And I was like, yes, that's, that's great. That's great. So when we released the album, I made it album only, which meant you have to, you have to buy the whole album if you want that particular track because I knew this is going to be a single. So I waited, spoke to a few few of my friends. Uh, Hot and Tasty Two got in touch with me. I said, "Yo, well, I love this track. You know what's going on?" And so obviously I asked him, "Does he want to remix it?" Then I asked the Martinez brothers, "Do they want to remix it?" And both of them said, "Yeah, instantly." And then obviously the rest is history. Bigger than Prince went absolutely bananas. Still is um, definitely the biggest underground cut in a beat of the summer. Um, and it's still growing, and who knows what's going to happen with that record. I, I know a lot of the majors really want to sign it. Um, Sony, really interested. Atlantic were, but then he kind of got cold feet for some reason, but we'll see. So you could but, have a pop hit on your hands then? Possibly, yeah. But, I mean, it, it's going to be, if you have a pop hit, it's going to be just an edit of the original version. There's, it's not going to be polluted in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so you've got um, Circus, the club night, obviously, Circus, the label, and then you've included the word um, Circus in many of the remixes you've yeah. turned in down the years. Why has it been so important to you to have this kind of uh, like branded approach down the years? Well, have you thought much about that? No, no, not, not at all. I haven't thought about it at all. I, I, just, I just started my party, and then I was going to, when I, I wanted to start a record label about six years ago, five years ago, um, I was going to call it something else and I had the artwork done and everything. And then my manager at the time was like, why are you changing and trying to put another brand into the, into the picture when you've got this five or six years history of this club with all these people playing for you? Why not just go down that route? So I said, okay. But before that, it was always, the, the remixes were always called Yousef Circus Reworks because I was um, making them for the dance floors at Circus. 10 years I've been doing those now, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's not kind of a full-on brand approach. It was never meant to be like that. But now, 10 years in, it seems to be 
going down that route. But again, it's all about quality. It's all about bringing um, fresh names in. I mean, e- even the club, you know, it was always about bringing fresh names in. People like um, like Loco Dice, for example, gave him his first UK gig. As far as I understand, he was like 200 quid. Same with Seth. Um, same with like a, lo- a lot of these guys, you know. Um, so it's always about bringing things forward as well as having a like an interesting start in the first place. So what's next for you? Um, what's next for me? Randomly, I've just finished making a track for the World Cup, World Cup album, which which is, which is a bit weird. I never seen that one coming out of the dark. But what's the World Cup album? <laughs> well, um, Fatboy Slim Norman has been is the official DJ of the World Cup, and um, he has been asked to get ten of his DJ mates or maybe more to all, to make all make a track for the official FIFA World Cup album. And the idea is we get given free reign of the Universal Music Catalog, the Brazilian one, and then we can kind of make a make a track. So I, I was a bit um I was a bit kind of concerned about bastardizing Brazilian music. So fortunately I happened to be in in Brazil at the time and then somebody gave me some really great advice as to not make it too um obvious or not uh, do like a candy version of Brazilian music, which which we might think is cool. But the Brazilians might find offensive. So um, with all this in mind, uh, I came back and then I went to, went up to Liverpool and recorded uh, Liverpool Samba School, which are like a first-rate, world-renowned uh, samba band uh, in this kind of really over, uh, quite aggressive techno back and track I'd made with this Brazilian vocalist as well uh, that had sampled from the Universal Music Catalogue and just pieced it all together. And um, it's come out really, really I think it's come out quite well. All the, all the project is complete, if you like. Um, and Fatboy Slim uh, signed it off yesterday. But there's people like, as far as I understand, there's Diplo, there's Claude Von Stroke, there's um, all the way to the other end of the scale, there's David Guetta. And there's all these kind of random, like uh, across the board DJs all making a track for this particular album. Which So it's nice to be asked to come and do one. And I did it to the best of my imagination. Um, and it's very kind of Latin. And one thing I learned from this Liverpool Samba band is some of the drums that you use um, together are regionally, you can't cross them over. So, for example, if one's from Salvador and another one's from uh, Sao Paulo, for example, you can't cross them. They have to kind of be regionally correct as well as musically correct, which is really interesting. So, yeah, great project there. Really enjoy doing that. And then what else is coming up? The Desolate thing, uh, a new track on... Sex recordings called Believe in Love with Roy Davis Jr. Um, but I'm up to all sorts all the time. Mm-hmm.